welcome to Night School, the podcast where I bring on experts in the fields of science, history, and all corners of academia to discuss the truth behind our favorite horror films. We'll explore what the movies get right, what they get wrong, and how sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction. I'm Graham Skipper. I'm a horror actor and filmmaker, but most importantly, I am a horror fan, and I'm also a sucker for nerdy academic discussions, and that is why we're here. Today, we are talking about James Wan's modern horror classic, Insidious, and specifically the accuracy of this film's depiction of spiritual mediums and paranormal investigators and the tools of their trade. Today, I'm joined by Peter Biebergall, the author of such books as Too Much to Dream, A Psychedelic American Boyhood, Season, Season of the Witch, How the Occult Saved Rock and Roll, Appendix in the Eldritch Roots of Dungeons and Dragons, and most pertinent to today's topic, Strange Frequencies, The Extraordinary Story of the Technological Quest for the Supernatural. Peter, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you again. Yeah, good to see you too. Thanks for being here. Um, I, I wanted to ask you just to start off. Um, could you start by telling us a little bit about your personal history with with horror in general and and with the occult? Um, sure. Uh, where, where where does that start for you? Gosh, it's like it's my favorite topic is that story because I think it's a lot of, especially um, of my generation. So I was born in '67. So I was, I got to experience um, a lot of the uh, UHF creature double feature and, and other, um, and then the late night monster and horror uh, UHF uh, programming. We had something in, um, in Massachusetts in the 70s called Simon Sanctorum which was, he was, you know, he would wear the cape and the makeup and he would introduce the films. And I think the first, I always loved monsters. And I think my first interaction, believe it or not, with anything having to do with monsters or horror was an amusement park in Massachusetts called uh, Nantasket Beach Paragon Park had a uh, I think it was called Kooky Castle was the ride. And it was the first time I saw skeletons or ghouls or whatever, you know, sort of jumping out from the shadows and just became completely obsessed. I wasn't scared of those things necessarily, but I liked the creepy feel. I think I, I, I something I, I've always kind of embraced that feeling of the uncanny not so much being just, you know, like jump scares aren't interesting to me as much as just a, a sort of slow burn dread, something that I sort of just have always, I guess, felt anyways in my life. So <laughs> sure. you know, when you find it in a movie or something, you know, um, believe it or not, I think the first horror film I saw was Willard. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, and I don't know why I saw that. I think maybe I had an older sibling that was watching it, and then they walked out of the room, and I just wanted to keep watching it. And then I was kind of obsessed with that whole idea of the creature. I mean, that was sort of the first creature feature in a way. And, and it was around that time, though, that I was also becoming exposed to all the universal horror films. And those are really my, that's sort of like the structure of my DNA are the universal monsters. Yeah. But I also liked, I remember we had, you know, around that time, there were a bunch of sort of uh, animal-related uh, monster movies that were very strange. Food of the Gods, um, Squirm, if you remember that one. Sure, yeah. Squirm. There was a couple of rat ones, I think. There was a spider, not an arachnophobia. I think there was an earlier spider movie. So, you know, I loved that. And then, of course, I went from reading Famous Monsters of Filmland to reading Fangoria. I mean, that was sort of the normal progression, right? And Starlog, of course, and, yeah. and all of those great magazines that I caught. I miss, I just miss that so much. I miss, I mean, never minding those particular magazines, I just miss how much of our culture in the 70s and 80s was, a fem was you know, about ephemera. Sure. So uh, a lot of nostalgia for that stuff. But so that was, you know, that that was my, that was sort of the 
the origin story. And I just always love that. I think I started to feel, a, I, I was interested in the George Romero and the shifting from the creature feature to the more serial killer uh, zombie kind of thing that started to really take over horror. I mean, obviously we saw that early on with like Chainsaw Massacre, but there was this sort of tendency of moving away from like, you know, the monster movie to the, this sort of more deranged psycho killer in some form. Yeah. And I think at some point I kind of felt my interest in horror specifically kind of fell away and I became more interested in looking back at the earlier uh, ideas of horror and, in film. And so was interested in, was very excited about like a movie like Alien that came out. Because yeah. for all intent purposes, that's just a creature feature. Film, yeah, it's, right? it's an old dark house movie. It's, it's exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So that, that was exact, that I liked in my brother, when I was, I think I was 13, my brother snuck me in to see uh, Damien, The Omen 2. And I always had a soft spot for anything having to do with the occult as it integrated its way into those kinds of, into those kinds of movies. I don't know necessarily where that interest came from. I think of a lot of it had to do with having an older brother who was listening to a lot of that, uh, you know, a lot of rock and roll that I was exposed to that for me also captured this kind of esoteric secret universe. So rock and roll really did rot your brain. They were right. Absolutely. <laughs> yep. Opening the gatefold cover to David Bowie's Diamond Dog record and seeing this weird lincolnthropic, you know, erotic creature there was, you know, yeah, I was like sure. nine or 10 years old. It sort of blew my mind. And I knew there was something you know what's the what's the line from uh, Close Encounter? You know this is important. This means yeah. something. You know, I, yeah, I knew yeah. that 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 was that was true about that. Um, I will tell you a funny story though about all this. I actually, when I was about fourteen, I watched for some reason. Do you remember? I don't know if you remember. Like in the late seventies and eighties, the UHF station started to show feature films on edited okay like only like one or two commercial interruptions and that's how i first saw like midnight cowboy and uh taxi driver and they were shown on you know without any edits so and i don't know how they got the permission or the maybe because they were uhf they could be under yeah some of the radar a lot of the meta just done it without asking permission without asking exactly <laughs> yeah so we had channel 38 i think it was called um the movie loft that was the that was the big show that we had and every you know a couple times a week i think they showed something and he would talk about it but somehow i ended up by myself watching the exorcist when i was about 13 or 14 and i have to say that movie kind of ruined my life for, for a couple of <laughs> yep. years uh -huh. there was something about it that just wasn't it didn't make me feel uh cozy in the way that you know even something is as is horrific as at the time is like alien right now. You know, it just something about aliens. I, I think at the time it, that was sort of a big deal in terms of gore and fright. It just it it it, it captured something in in me that was I was I, I just I just love you know I could have watched it over and over again. By like midway through The Exorcist, when she's like peeing on the floor, uh -huh. Uh -huh. I was. It's like I, I shouldn't be done. watching this. Yeah, yeah. I was done, you know. And so I think it was a weird turn for me in thinking about for a while about 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 those kinds of films. I became sort of more scared for some reason for a couple of years about that. And then a friend of mine wanted me to watch Nightmare on Elm Street, and I didn't want to watch mm -hmm, them. Mm -hmm. And I started just feeling like this this like sort of creep that I didn't like, but then eventually, you know, we I sort of got over it, you know, sure. and, um, but I have to say, even with it, with all the, there's been some great modern horror films, I think, especially we've been sort of living in a golden age, you know, yeah. of, of, of horror movies, but there's a part of me that still misses uh, just that, the idea of sort of just the monster as the, protagonist 
you know, and, yeah, and sometimes the antagonist as well, well, both, right? Especially like Frankenstein, you know, or sure. Dracula, where they, they're both the villain and the kind of anti-hero of these films. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I, I, I hear you on that. And I think that there's also something like you talk about it being a comfort blanket, you know, I think that there's something to those movies where because we have a separation of, you know, I know that I know really that Frankenstein is not going to walk in and get me, that there's something kind of comforting about. I love that feeling, that spooky feeling like you talk about uh, with being in that haunted house, um, which is interesting talking about Insidious because so much of that movie is essentially just a haunted house. It's a haunted know? house movie. Um, it's a haunted house movie. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I wanted to touch on a little bit uh, what you said about The Exorcist, because I have a story of my own. I had a little bit of, of the opposite experience of you, where growing up, I was fascinated with all things horror. I had this big picture book that had all the universal monsters in it. It had Freddy and Jason and Leatherface and Pinhead and had all of them in it. I was fascinated with it, but I was so scared to watch any of them. I was oh, terrified. And so my thinking was, and I was like nine or ten. I thought to myself, okay, I think I'm going to enjoy these once I watch them, but I'm too scared to watch them. So if I watch the scariest one first, <laughs> get that out of the way, then everything else will be a piece of cake. So I went to my dad and I asked him what the scariest movie ever made was. How old were you, do you think? I was like nine or 10, I think. Oh, gosh. And maybe 11, you know? And I said, dad, what's the scariest movie ever made? And he said, I think it's The Exorcist. And I said, well, can we watch The Exorcist? And so he went, he rented the movie. I sat right between my parents. I watched The Exorcist. And like you, it fucking wrecked me. It <laughs> ruined me. I was so scared. I, I didn't sleep at all that night. I was completely convinced I was going to yeah, get possessed. Oh God, you yeah. know? And, and it was that intangible thing of, I mean, like I grew up going to church and stuff, but I wasn't like a super religious person. Um but still, there was something about that that was just like, you know, the the innocence, her innocence, you know, she mm -hmm. didn't do anything wrong. There was no monster you could see. She became right. the monster. It was just so exactly. scary to me. But what it did for me was the next morning, it was a Saturday or a Sunday, I woke up and the first thing I wanted to do during the daylight was watch it again. Oh, and I sat down and I must have watched that movie like three times that day, just trying to understand because I knew in my head there's a director that's doing this. These are actors. I know this isn't real, but my fear is very real. How are they doing this to me? Was that the moment you realized you wanted to be a filmmaker? A hundred percent. That was it. That was it. Specifically, it was, it was how every time I watched it that day, I was consistently surprised by the moment in the attic when the flame jumps real high on the candle. And I was like, I've seen this now like four times in a row, it still gets me. How, like, how did he do that? That's incredible. Um, you know, and of course that next weekend, I invited all my other friends over. I made them all watch it. Um, and that started me, you know, going to the video store and, at, you know, saying, I want all the slashers. I want Freddy, Jason, Pinhead, Leatherface. What movies do I need? You know, and that started me on my horror journey. Uh, sure. You know, so The Exorcist is definitely near and dear to my heart as well. <laughs> yeah, I would say it's, it is, yeah, it, it definitely represents like this sort of crossroads for me. And and I think it's also, um, it represents for me something that I don't think a lot of even contemporary films are able to do without the conceits. I mean, that's the interesting thing about The Exorcist is there's no conceit. Sure. Right? There's no extra thing like say paranormal experience where sort of you're watching a lot of it through the videos that were being recorded or Blair Witch or where you have sort of have these extra um, things that are supposed to help create this sense of disassociation or you're just in it's like almost like a documentary it's more like a documentary than Blair Witch is like a documentary sure mm -hmm. I think right and so you know, as I, I watched Insidious, um, thinking about this conversation we were going to have, and what's interesting about that is it definitely is a film that is in love with all the other horror films that ever came before it, right? Sure. I mean, there's, and that's 
great. I mean, that's all every it's to pretend that the thing you're doing is so original, you know, is kind of silly, right? That's what I think my favorite film of the last, my favorite horror film, and maybe really in the top films of the last, say, 10 years is Mandy. Mm, wonderful. Because I yep. feel like Mandy just wears everything on its sleeve. Yeah. Right. There's no we're pretending this is something original. There's zero pretension in Mandy. Mandy is exactly what it is and it loves being what it is. Yeah, exactly. Um, And I felt that that Juan tried not to have pretension, but there are still some of the, um, some of those, some of the things that it tries to do, I think, pull you outside of the possibility for what I would call sort of an enchanted, kind of hmm. experience with the film you know uh, it's it's close i think the what i think should we assume that the listeners you're li- that the people listening to this have seen it i think so and and if you haven't okay. seen insidious know that there are spoilers ahead so okay. so tread yeah. tread tread uh tread <laughs> yes. with with uh tread with caution yeah there was a moment in the film i was that i thought was an odd uh, take and that's when there's like this I don't even know how to describe. He was, he sort of looked like a pro wrestler dude. Are you, are you talking about the, the like demon creature that sort of comes out and he's got like the big black trench coat on and. Yes. Because he doesn't really look like the, the red face thing. I mean, maybe, but he looks too human. Like they make him too literal. He doesn't have this kind of um, uncanny thing about it. And it, and I think it just played weird for me. Um, it took me a little bit out, but then the rest of that scene, where the kid is throwing everybody around, yeah, was quite quite good. Yeah, I always I'm always really taken by, uh, you know, the the man with fire on his face, uh, that red faced demon, uh, that that is just I think to me, it, it still gives me the creeps when uh, yeah. when when I see him pop up. He's such a a, a memorable and iconic sort of image. Um, you know, I, now that we're talking about Insidious, I, I just I want to I want to jump in and talk to you a little bit about uh, sp- specifically this intersection of technology and the supernatural, which I sure. think is really you know, and, and that's part of the reason why I recommended this movie for this discussion because um, obviously there are paranormal investigators in a lot of horror films, um, Poltergeist being one of the biggest examples, but I think that in this one specifically they really make a point to, to sort of focus on that and to tell us about what they're doing and to, yes. to show us, you know, the sort of things that they see. And, and, and then really specifically, it's that combat, the, the fact that it's these paranormal researchers that are like sort of firmly footed in science with a spiritual medium who is firmly rooted in like metaphysics and, and the supernatural. Um, so I guess my, my question for you is, in, 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 and, you know, building off of your research from doing strange frequencies and, and, uh, and just really diving into, uh, into the facts of how actual paranormal research and ghost hunting and whatever you want to call it works. Um, is that something that's kind of normal in this world to have the technological with like a medium? Like, do they work in tandem like that often? Yes. Um, and there's and and there's two points about that that are really important. And I, I was so there was one moment in the film, or one one sort of part of the film that, that I, I think I I just love so much because they hit on something that's so important. So I want to back up a little bit before I answer that question. Before the medium enters into it, you you sort of you have to under you have to figure out you know in these tropes. What you're going to do with, first of all, what technology you're going to use, what's the right thing you're going to use. It's going to be a camera, it's going to be, right, uh, audio recording device. But if you look at the history of technology's relationship with supernatural in all its forms, one thing that keeps coming up is that you are purposefully having to misuse this artifact, whatever it is, this this piece of technology, because they are not intended to do what you're trying to do with them. Mm. So the very use of them is a kind of a half. Right? Mm. You're breaking it in a sense, because you again, you're 
you're using it in a way it was never intended to be used. But sometimes to do that, you have to literally hack it. You might have to change something about it. You might have to, you know, use a, you might have to say, use a camera in a way that a, a normal situation or a, another photographer might say, that's not how you take photographs. You're doing it wrong. Because you have to purposefully do it wrong. Hmm. And there's that, uh, one of his devices is one of those, um, what are the toy that the kids use to look yeah, at the, um, Yeah, the, what's it called? It's like the uh, Viewmaster. Something Viewmaster. The Viewmaster. Yeah. So he basically, it's a Viewmaster. And, and his friend, even his partner even says, it's a modified toy. But that's, that's perfect in the sense that you have to use something like a modified toy to be able to access the sort of the otherworldly because the normal use of the thing can only register the phenomenal, right? Huh. Yeah. It's only by, the, by this intent to, to break it that you are then acting in a way like a, say, an, a, a magician has to, and I don't mean a stage magician, I mean sort of an occult magician. You, you sort of have to, you have to change the rules of how things are done. Right. You can't go into it just saying, I'm just going to bring my camera and expect to be able to take pictures of this. There's something to, to add that level of, of, I wouldn't call it detail, but just that sensibility to the plot and to the script was really, really smart. And I don't know if, and I think maybe just because that I was writing about that, that I was, that really, uh, I really picked up on that. So once so now, once you have your equipment, which you've probably again had to break, misuse, hack in some way, then the question is where is the is the technology itself the medium, or do you need a secondary hmm. level of, of understanding? So one of the people that I talked to interviewed in the book Strange Frequencies is this woman named Donna Hogan, who is a, a self-professed. EVP investigator, EVP standing for electronic voice phenomena. And for people that don't know, that's a technique whereby using some kind of electronic listening device, be it a tape recorder, a, a, a radio, a white noise machine, anything that you can think of that either produces noise that can then be recorded or just a microphone in an empty room, you can, under certain conditions is the story, or is the idea you can pick up sounds from the spirit world. How Donna explains it is spirits, because they're not corporeal, don't have mouths and don't have voice boxes and so can't actually speak to us in a way that we can hear they need a medium as it were mm -hmm. right so it's either you're speaking through the spirit medium or you're speaking through you know the manipulation of radio waves of some kind or something mm -hmm. right to be able to and sometimes it could be something just like white noise a white noise machine is supposedly providing enough raw material for the spirit to be able to manipulate in such a way that it could be registered as a voice on, say, a tape recorder. That the the radio waves themselves are sort of like just a larynx hanging out there. And that's right. The ghosts are able to go in and fiddle with it to make some noise when they can't themselves. <laughs> that's right. And what's really interesting is there's a really interesting, in, as far back as the, uh, 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 the spiritualism in the, in the late 1800s, when they were starting to use photography to try to take pictures of spirits, there was a bunch of spiritualist uh, newspapers and magazines, sort of like fanzines, you know, um, of the time. And one of them would record seances, and then you would, you know, you would read them like articles in this, in this newspaper. I think there's one called the the Boston Banner. I think was the name of one of the ones that was actually here, Massachusetts spiritualist paper. And in one of the sessions, they ask 
the spirit, the medium asked the spirit, how is it that you are able to reveal yourself on a photograph, photographic plate? And the spirit says something like, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I have the actual quote, I don't have the book with me, but it says something like, well, we are a, on this side of, of, the, of life in the other, in the afterlife, we are able to perform certain experiments with physics that are just different than you would be able to do. So we can do it from here, but you can't really do it from, you know, you need, and the person says, well, well can you tell us how? And the spirits say, there's no way you would understand. This is, <laughs> yeah. we have to keep this a secret from, from you. But essentially there's this idea that built into the sort of, you know, these mythologies, these, these legends, as it were, is this idea that it's not that you set your camera up and now that you have a camera, the spirit says, oh, look, a camera, I'm going to go let it take a picture of me. There is this spirits around us all the time, right? And they were sort of just waiting for us to invent the, the proper technologies to sure. be able to speak to us. And, you know, it used to be they had to use dreams and other, you know, sorts of, uh, you know, scene stones or whatever mirrors or whatever it was. And as our technology gets more sophisticated, then our interaction with with them can become more and more sophisticated. But one of the things that Donna explained to me is that your use of something, like let's say you are, uh, you go into a, a, say you believe there's a house that's haunted, you set up a tape recorder, you might ask, say, are there any spirits here? We invite you to speak to us using this this technology we've provided here and you might leave you could stay and you wouldn't hear anything sitting there because that's not how it works if they could just talk to you then they wouldn't need it so then an hour or two hours later you would go back to your studio and you would listen to the tape and sometimes it takes having to amplify you know, it's not like you're just going to hear it. You might have to amplify. Um, you might have to look for where you can't hear it, but for some reason the the, the sound software, the music software you're using is registering a, some kind of spike. Hmm. And then you would amplify that area. I mean, it, you know, it can be very complicated. And then even then you're only going to get maybe very subtle sounds. According to Donna, you actually have to be yourself a sensitive to be able to really be able to use this equipment and to hear huh. the resulting messages that not you to, anybody you have to can want just, to hear it kind of you have to want to hear it and the more you use them this equipment you yourself become a spiritual medium huh right so it's not just something anybody can go do now some people would say probably can but for donna the relationship between the technology and her is the full mediumship right? huh. she can't do it without the tape recorder but the tape recorder can't do it without her in the sense of then what you have on the other side to be able to actually understand what might have been said that's so interesting wow yeah that's... so i think they capture that in this film quite well Right, where uh, the where the uh, what's the woman's name? Um, uh, well, she's played by Lynn Shea. Um, yes, um, yes, but that character, how yeah, that how she is is clearly reliant on these guys. You know, not just as a first line of defense. You know, as they say to make sure you're not crazy, but but then to to go in and like, you know, he he sketches things for her. He is literally connected to her via that gas mask contraption to write yes. things down. It's, it's, it's a symbiotic relationship in a lot of the same ways as you're talking about with Donna. That's very much so. And what's interesting in that case is you have 
especially with this gas mask, folks haven't seen it. Um, she's she's hooked up. That they put this gas mask on her that has a hose that then seems to be connected to some kind of amplification device, which then he listens to with headphones. And she speaks, or the spirits speak through her, but only he can hear her. And then he has to dictate what she says. So now you have this sort of three-way device, right? You have the, the technology of this gas mask, the headphones, whatever else is, you know, is amplifying the actual spirit medium. And then like the scribe, yeah. which is sort of almost, and for him, it almost becomes, there's a point at which it looks like he's going into a trance state also. And he's just did like doing automatic writing. Yeah. You know, like he's being moved. Like you don't know, is he actually hearing her voice and he's dictating literally, or is he just hearing psychic resonances that's allowing him the same with the drawing? I mean, when she, there's this great scene where she's telling him what to draw, but you can only really hear it. She's saying, he has black man, he has wings, he has black bloke. And it's very strange that he's sketching frantically but there's a sense that they like you said that they have this kind of psychic connection as well um because it's not that she's just gently dictating to him what he should be right saying writing or drawing yeah it, it feels very much like he's in the trenches as much as she is even if he's not seeing the stuff happening you know That's he's right. but he's still part of it i'm Curious in all of your research, I mean, is stuff like, have you ever encountered stories of stuff like that gas mask contraption or or any of no. these methods? No, not nothing like that. Um, certainly there are lots of stories about the, the, the you know, uh, uh, one of the famous is uh, William Butler Yeats, the poet who was a member of a magical order called the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn late 1800s, turn of the century. Um, and he had uh, his uh, wife at the time would, uh, would channel and he would do automatic writing. You know, they sort of played this automatic writing game. And he wrote a book called A Vision, which is a, so we, there's lots of stories, of, especially with artists sort of using these techniques where you have um, somebody acting as a channeler and then the the author or the artist is sort of doing the actual creation of the thing, you know, so it's yeah. part and parcel, but nothing. I mean, I thought that was a great set piece. Sure. It made it so weird and it made it more, it gave it more, not believability, but it just, it gave it more um, depth, I think, to add these elements of things that are just so, not what you would expect these these kind of folks to be doing the kind of technology they were to be using. Are you familiar with a, a British film from the seventies called The Stone Tape? Uh, no, I'm not. Oh, that's a good one. So that has some similar conceits. I think really one of the great films about tech and the supernatural. It's about a, I think, they're like an electronics company that are working on recording techniques and they are, they need access to a, a room that is soundproof in a very particular way or has, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not ambience, but um, what do you call the acoustics, certain acoustic properties that they need to be able to, work on this equipment that they're trying to develop. So they go to this house. It's like a, 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 an old mansion in England. And they start to experience hauntings hmm. and all kinds of very strange things happen. And it's all happening uh, using the equipment that they brought. There's a great scene with a computer and it's an old computer that has like the, uh, the teletype is how the you get the message and it starts to talk to them. They start getting messages through the computer. And it turns out that 
it's not that the it's not that that there is a haunting as much as what what's happening is the 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 stones of the house are actually tapes they've imprinted terrible things that have happened in yeah. the house huh. and they're just playing back oh weird on okay. a loop all the time <laughs> when you go there that's a fun idea yeah. i like that yeah yeah so um and so this is this really interesting idea where the 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 non the thing that is not a, a piece of technology actually is rendered as technology you know and so I think that using something that just doesn't feel anything like it has anything to do with like electronics or electricity, the gas mask was just so, such a great, just a great image. Yeah, it's a great image. And it also, you know, it, it brings to mind, you know, because obviously they have this, this more high tech modern stuff, you know, not just the cameras, but all these like, you know, EMF readers and all this stuff. But then you have something that to me feels very almost Victorian, like the gas mask. Yes, that, that's right. That's that's a really good way to say it. Yeah, you know that that at a certain point that was modern technology, and and it is certainly something man-made, and it is certainly a tool that we use that is still elevated above like a pen and paper, you know. Right. And, right. But but it but it also is like archaic a little bit to the point of a feeling like. I don't know about you, but when I think of a seance, I imagine Houdini sitting at a table, you know, with like a crystal ball in the middle. I don't exactly. necessarily think about a modern day, a modern day event like that, even though I know that they happen. Um, so I thought that was really interesting of that kind of combination of it's still it's still modern technology, but it's kind of Victorian modern technology. I, that, I think that's great. I think that's a really great read of it. What's also interesting about it is it kind of traps her. Mm -hmm. more so it feels it makes us feel claustrophobic yeah also along with like whatever her experience is well and it um, gives her a little bit of a of a monstrous look too you know she oh, suddenly yes. becomes kind of scary you know yes. and she's been this sweet little old lady and then all of a sudden she's Ooh, i don't i don't really like looking at her like that there's all these questions of whether there's always the question of whether or not the medium is trustworthy or not either because they're a uh they're uh, a charlatan or because they are an agent for the uh -huh. thing. I mean, there's that great moment in Poltergeist where suddenly she's telling her to go into the light. Yeah. And you're like, no, wait, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. And everybody's freaking out and you're freaking out. And you're like, wait a minute, is she the bad guy here? What's happening? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's like... Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's a good point too. I mean, especially with Zelda, Zelda Rubenstein. I mean, her, you know, she herself is so kind of creepy and odd and yes. otherworldly that, yes. you know, of course that's an inherent part of this too, that I, I hadn't really thought about until you mentioned it, but that's absolutely true. Um, yeah. I, you know, another, another bit of like sort of old technology that they use in this is, is the metronome to sort of induce the astral projection. Um, right. I was curious if, if you had any, uh, I don't know, anecdotes or thoughts that, you know, from your research about, about metronomes and, and specifically, like, I mean, you talk about strange frequencies, you know, it seems like sound and that sort of realm is really important here. Um, yes. Can you I talk about that so. a little bit? Yep. I think what's interesting is I don't know if they were making a nod to this, but certainly there are uh, tech technological techniques that have been used to try to uh, induce these uh, altered states of consciousness, possibly ones that are actually about some kind of astral projection, um, out-of-body experiences. So the, the most famous is called the Dream Machine, which is invented by Brian Geisen, who was pals with William Burroughs. And they, the story is Geisen was on a bus and he was, looking at the window and the on a tree-lined street and the sunlight was reflecting through the trees so that as the bus was moving it was creating a strobe effect you can think about that and he went it he had a he went into a visionary state huh and so he basically worked with this other fellow um to 
make a DIY piece of equipment, which is really just a record player. And you, you, you take some cardboard and you fold it into a, a, uh, a cylinder and you cut some shapes out of it. And then you put a light bulb through it, dangle a light bulb, and it just spins on the hmm. record player and you get very close and you stare into the light. And people have been using this great stories of like Michael Stipe using one of these to sort of have like these creative experiences. Um, what other folks though have done were to create more of like, um, there's always been research about how strobe effects can actually induce different wave states. Like you go from like theta, delta wave, theta waves to bring you into these deeper sort of, um, not sleep states, but you know, these other kinds of altered states. And people have made like goggles, but what others have added to this, which I think comes out of a sort of a history of, of mesmerism and hypnosis, where you might use a clock or something like a, a, a metronome is adding binaural beats. Hmm. Um, and a binaural beat is, if you don't know, is you take two different tones. Uh, so it's by, by into each ear, but it creates a single tone. Hmm. And, and that can also induce um, these, these change, change, changes in the brain states. Um, and people have claimed to be able to do not only just astral projection, but like take their astral bodies to Mars and meet Martians and aliens. And I mean, there's wow. all kinds wow. of stories about stuff like this. So, um, but I think all of it goes back to an understanding of how certain tones or the repetition of tones, you know, whether it was the early mesmerists um, who were doing this or even today, I mean, I think hypnotherapists will use things like metronomes or. Well, well this has reminded me a lot of, of the modern practice of EMDR. Um, we, oh, right. You know, yeah. where, where you're sort of tracking a light or even it sometimes it's, uh, you know, send through sound or even through like tapping on your knees uh, that that's said to make major changes in, in your brain patterns. So yes. it feels like there's something to this. Yeah, I mean, that's I think that that's all very what's great about what I love about what I loved about researching that stuff is. Um, I think it it really does make us ask questions about sort of consciousness and how consciousness works and how it relates to art and our creativity and the output. Um, the thing about EVP that can get frustrating sometimes is it can be very literal, like you either are hearing what the what the spirit is saying or you're not. And I've had people, you know, you can go on, a, I, I did this experiment where I, went, I looked for EVP YouTube videos and people would be using one of the one of the most popular EVP techniques is to uh, do something with, uh, to make something called a Frank's box, which is essentially you're taking a digital AM/FM radio that would scan the frequencies. And you know when you press seek, it will go through and it will stop when it gets to a station that it can pull in clearly. You can hack it in such a way. You can get instructions for this online. So that it doesn't stop, it just keeps scanning through the frequencies. So you end up with like a digital Ouija board of like, huh. I, you see, I want you to, you know, from pulling sounds from different stations. And so, and again, supposedly this becomes sort of the raw material that a spirit would use to construct actual sentences, right? Huh. That it, it will, it will manipulate the radio so that it can, it can do that. So you can go on and you can. So what I would do is. I would, the, the person would do the experiment on the video, but what they would do is they would caption it. And captioning oh, is a very tricky yep, thing. I know what you mean. You can't not hear now what's being captioned. Yeah. So what I would do is I would play a video, I would close my eyes and I would write down what I heard. And then I would watch it. And nine out of 10 times, the captions were completely different from what I had heard when I just had my eyes closed. But once I saw the captions, it was impossible to not yeah. hear that, right? Yeah. Um, so that 
I, I feel, you know, and so then maybe in the end, it really does like you have to trust somebody like Donna, who you're going to trust as the medium to filter out what it is or what it isn't for you. You know, that's that would be her. If telling her that story, she would say, well, you're not sophisticated enough to be able to do this. Yeah. You haven't been trained. You're not a medium. You're not a spiritual medium. You don't know how to interact with the technology properly. Well, it's like it's like when Lin Chi's character says to them, if we're going to do this, you have to trust me implicitly and you have right. to do everything that I say. And, exactly. and so there's definitely an element of just total faith, which I think is an interesting element and a layer here of, of faith, you know, yes. whether or not you are a religious person. Um, but you, you have to have a degree of faith if you're going to be going down this road. Or like Donna says, if you're going to be if you're going to be able to hear something, you've got to have faith that you're going to hear something. Right. which that's is right. difficult right you know that's yes. that's challenging that's right and she could have told them anything right but in the movie like that at some point the phenomena has to match to what she said mm -hmm. right and then it's true then it becomes true yeah yeah it's interesting to like think about this from you know from like an outsider scientific perspective where there's really kind of no way and, and maybe you, you might prove me wrong here, but to get like incontrovertible proof, you know, somebody's saying, I want to get proof that ghosts exist. But, but in order to get that proof, you have to sort of trust someone whose, whose job is sort of inherently unprovable. That's right. And more than that, even more importantly than that singular moment where even if everything looks like it's happening exactly right, is it has to be repeatable. Mm -hmm. And you, it, it just is, it just, I mean, there are plenty of people that will tell me I'm wrong, um, but it's not repeat, like, you know, it's sort of the thing like you can't peer review it in the sense that you can't, you could say, well, I'm doing it this way and I'm going to show you 18 times how out of 17 out of 18 times it works. But that means anybody else should be able to do exactly the same thing and get the same exact results. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and for me, all of this, which is why I love, you know, movies or things like that is because I'm not looking for the proven. To, I'm not looking for what's provable. I'm looking to engage with the phenomena and have kind of an enchanted experience with it, have a experience that brings me into the moment. I mean, why do we even get scared by films? Right? Yeah going into them knowing that it's the same reason in some ways we watch a stage magician and know that it's trickery but still are amazed by it and it's more than just amazed at their technique it really feels like something's happening that's yeah extraordinary right yeah yeah well one of my one of my favorite uh shows on tv is Penn and teller fool us you oh, know, it's great. And, yeah. and it's such a it's it's, I think, a great sort of distillation of this idea of here are two guys that they know everything. They know how to debunk everything, you know, and they are still chasing that dragon of still right. wanting to be fooled. Um, yes. You know, I, I, I had, you know, I, I have similar experiences when I watch movies and I'm dazzled by something that I just don't understand or go. I go see a, a an amazing stage show and and it totally captivates me and still takes me away. Like I want that. And, yes, and, it, absolutely. It, and it feels a little bit like, you know, with, with this paranormal investigation stuff that sort of veers into, into the realm of the mythological, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's like, it's like got one foot in science and one foot in like myth-making. And right. it, yes, you know, and it's, but it feels like that's, it's kind of tickling the same part of the brain. Does that make sense? Yes. No. And it has to. It has to. It has to play inside of that tension because here's what's great about thinking about it. I think because it's fun to think about. Let's just take something like a radio. The science, the scientific method, that has been carefully honed, and and that is you know, that it's unshakable in some ways, I guess you could say, at least in the, you know, this phenomenal world, the scientific method that makes something like us being able to even invent and make a radio, 
would tell us that the same technique, the same scientific method would show that spirits don't exist. Mm -hmm. But, but the radio as an object, somehow we are able to separate it from that scientific principles that make it even work. Right. Right. And say, we can actually use it. So technology and science, it's, you know, look, I don't, I don't want to cast aspersions, but there are people that believe that um, the earth was created. Um, I think now we're up to like five, 5,000 years ago. Right. Right. Perfectly formed and all the animals and Adam and rode dinosaurs around. Right. Right. But those same folks are talking to their kids on their cell phones. Mm -hmm. Now those don't seem like they should be at odds, but why would they trust in this piece of technology that only works if you really want to play the game? It only works because Adam did not ride dinosaurs. Right. right. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's our, yeah. our ability to make it work. But somehow these devices get separated in that way and they become these odd, they become these sort of magical objects. Well, right? it's like it's like uh, Arthur C. Clarke, like what's this quote about the the at, at a certain point, tech, you know, a sufficient enough technology becomes indistinguishable from magic. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. And so I think that there's something, and that's why I think the spirit of playing with technologies to interact with the supernatural has to be the hacker spirit. Because you're basically, and I've said this before, you're kind of having to void the warranty of the of the thing to be able to make it do what you want it to do, because it has to work outside the laws of which even made it function in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's that's a really interesting idea. And and especially, you know, thinking about you saying to do what you want it to do. Again, there's that intention, you know. Yes. And and then you even, I mean, you, you talk in your book a little bit about like quantum physics, you know, and how there's there's that sort of magical quality of quantum physics that that says, you know, sort of intention actually does drive reality. And so that to me kind of feeds into this, uh, th this whole concept, this whole sphere of here we are using technology and intending it to let us talk to our loved ones that are dead. Right. And, and lo and behold, the technology works, right. you know, well, let me turn it back on you specifically as a, as not as the person interviewing me, but as a filmmaker, what were you thinking with sequence break? Uh, wow, very good question. And thank you for, for asking. Yeah, um, for me, the whole ending of that film is about, is, is rooted in the, the uh, quantum physics idea of, of parallel universes and how every, mm -hmm. every choice that we make is happening somewhere in, in a parallel universe. Um, you know, this sort of sliding doors theory that that it's not about we make a choice and then there's a new branch. It's that all the branches are happening at all times. Time, um, right. You know, uh, every every electron, you know, when I when I take a sip of water, those electrons that are going into my body are are also going to the end of the universe and back. They're going back <laughs> yeah. in time and then coming back to me. You know, they're doing all those things at once. Yeah. Right. And so for me, it, you know, and, and this sequence break is ultimately a movie about, about trying to make, trying to make the right choice and how the right choice is never, is never really what you think it is. And in fact, there is no right choice that it's about looking at things from a new perspective. And so for him, he's faced, he gives himself these kind of two um, opposite worlds, one where he's alone forever building his cabinets and living that life. And then one where uh, he's, he's trapped forever uh, with, with the girl that he's in love with. And, and what he learns is that he actually has to sort of break free from both of those and come at it from a different angle. Right. Um, yeah. You know, and then, but, and but then how the, is it, but why, I guess that why, why, what is it about the technology of a video game that allows for the exposure to these ideas? Right. Yeah. So, so for me, 
video games are a sort of uniquely they're they're a unique entertainment medium in that not only is it a thing that we are viewing that we're separate from, but it's also a thing that we are directly influencing and creating in real time. You right. know, when we watch a movie, we're sitting, you know, on our couch watching the movie happen. Watch, yeah, you know, when watching a play, same thing. We're sitting in the audience, the the stuff is happening, maybe even all around us. It might be very uh, interactive, but we're still watching this thing. But with video games, you know, the the creators and the artists that make these things have given us something that we can manipulate and we can control. Um, and you use the term hackers a lot, you know, that the, the term sequence break refers to when somebody figures out how to break the sequence of a game. So like a simple, um, a simple example would be when you play Super Mario and in the second level, you can jump up above the bricks at the very top and run oh, all the way yes. along the top. Yes, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, a very yeah. simple form of sequence breaking. Yeah, you know, and that, but that's what but it you're is. Kind of, you're at, you're suddenly you're in the code. Yeah, yeah, you're in the code. You're you're not doing things the way that the programmers intended, and it's allowing right. you to get ahead of the game. Um, right. And and so if you're able to do that. And, you know, you've talked about hacking a lot, and I think it's a very similar concept here, is that if you're able to hack the game and if you're able to, 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 to figure out how to manipulate the, the structure of the code to work in your favor, then really anything's possible. Because the world, the universe of the game is an entire universe, and here you are breaking it. And so how cool would it be, how powerful would it be if you could do that to your own universe, do that to your own life? Oh, Right. You know, yes, and, yes. and, and it's, you know, to bring it back to like EVP and, and stuff like this, that's sort of what we're doing. You know, that's sort of what these folks are doing is they're trying to, yes, it's a sequence. Break. It's yeah. Perfect. They're sequence breaking reality. They're hacking that's right. our that's own right. reality. But you need the medium to do that. And it used to be, it was harder to do it. If all you had were the spirit visiting you in your dream. Or all you had was a medium on the other side of the table, but then suddenly now the medium has a has a camera, and that's well now we all have something. now we all have cell phones exactly. in our pocket. Like exactly, we exactly. all have these very high powered computers. You know that that a thousand years ago would have been just like total magic. We can't even imagine. We can't even imagine it. You know, and and and, and the acceleration imagine. of it. I mean, think about mm -hmm. it was only. See, I got my 16-bit Atari 800, my 8-bit Atari 800 in um, 1982, 81, you know, um, um, and you can't even measure the difference between this phone and that 8-bit you know, yeah. computer. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I mean, it's the, it's the you know, sort of uh, running joke of our teachers when we were in school, you know, we'd say, why do we have to learn them this math? And they go, well, you're not always going to have a calculator in your pocket. You know? <laughs> exactly. and, and then of course now we do. Um, yeah. It's, it's just, really, it's really interesting that intersection of technology and, and the spiritual and the supernatural uh, and, and, and how it totally makes sense that as technology becomes better and better and better. Uh, so too does our yearning to use it to, see further and than that's we ever have been exactly able to. right like why doesn't it make us more rational in that sense yeah you know, why does it open up the possibilities one thing though i just want to point out though two of these different ways that just sort of different so um when it comes to technology and the supernatural there's a number of different sort of categories the first is technology used to debunk mm -hmm. right um technology used to uh, have the uh, the interaction whereby, you know, we make it possible, you know, we have to take the picture. And then there's the technology that the spirits, quote, themselves access without our asking them to, in a sense. So I think there's a difference between like Insidious and Poltergeist where the spirits don't, the spirits and poltergeist essentially get into the house through the television set. Right. Right. But in Insidious, 
technology is used to prove that they are there to find out what they're up to. Well, there, there's a degree of the, um, I mean, they use the baby monitor, you know. Oh, that's true. Early yes, on, they use the right. baby monitor. Right. And they, and they yes, even use, right. they even use the record player, which is also. Oh, that's right. That's a great scene where she hears the music outside yeah. the house. Yeah. Yeah, the tiny Tim. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. No, that's good. Yeah. So, and I do think that, you know, I mean, you really does make you realize how important poltergeist is as a film. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, what does everybody think of when they see a static ETV? Right, exactly. I mean, it's right. it's like Jaws and the ocean, you know? It's, yes. You see a static ETV and you immediately want to, I, at least I do, I want to immediately turn it off. Yes, right, know? exactly. And, and you know what's interesting about that too, something that I've always found a sort of weird like link there is... You know, there are theories that that when you're looking at a static TV, you know, what you're seeing is you're seeing a whole bunch of different radio waves that are being picked up um, that are just sort of out there. But, you know, they're, they're nothing in particular. They're just kind of all getting mushed up together. And then you're seeing it like that. Um, but that it's something like one percent of what you're seeing is the background radiation from the Big Bang. I know it's just. You know, and it's like, and, and so it's sort of, again, and that, that to me feels almost mystical, you know, I think so. Yeah, it's, it's like, I'm, I'm not a particularly, you know, religious person or whatever. But when I think of spirituality, I think of the universe, I think of like, that, that, that to me, that to me is like the greater being of whatever it, all this means yep. and all this is. And so then to have that tied in with this idea of something from the beyond can move through that into our world it it lends it some validity you know it lends it, it yeah more it really validity does. than the exorcist it gives it a little bit of like <laughs> Ooh, okay, well, exactly yeah. that's the point it's like but i'm using te- but we know i mean that's the argument right but the technology works it, it you see it's happening why would you discount it yeah right yeah everything on the internet is true <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> um, Peter, this was a, a fascinating discussion. Yeah, really fun. Thank you so much for, for doing this. I uh, It really opened my eyes and um, I really encourage everybody to pick up Strange Frequencies and, and all of Peter's books, but I've really been enjoying reading it. And uh, it's, it's not just uh, fascinating from a scientific and a historical standpoint, but just kind of the overall uh, philosophical implications of what you talk about, I think are really interesting. So uh, thank you. Yeah. Um, so, Peter, uh, tell us, tell us, where can people get your books? Where would you prefer people to buy them from? And then yep. where can where can folks find you? Yeah. So anyway, I mean, obviously, I would love for you to get your books at your local independent bookstores. Um, if you don't have one there, by bookshop.org is a really great place. They work with all the independent stores, but really any place you get books. Um, I'm on um my usually if you just search my full name you and i don't know if you'll have show notes but um you can find me on twitter and and inst- i actually been enjoying instagram a lot lately just because it seems the the gentler of the social media <laughs> it, it is definitely gentler i uh yeah I, I made the mistake of uh making a comment about stranger things on twitter the other day and let me tell you the horde descended upon me do you mind uh, if i ask what the it was, it was, it, it wasn't even anything like negative about it. I have nothing against the show. I was, I was making the comparison that I, I've been seeing a lot of uh, sort of negative commentary from people my age, making fun of younger people for not having known who Kate Bush was before they heard the song on the show. Yeah. And I was like, everybody our age learned about Bohemian Rhapsody from Wayne's world, you exactly. know, exactly. Yeah, like, exactly. And- I learned about Sergeant Pepper from the Bee Gees. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like we all, you know, come on. And it was just a whole thing. And it was actually mainly yeah. a lot of people that were like, Queen was famous before Wayne's World. And going, I know that. I get it. I get it. Right. <laughs> it's we not know. the point yeah, exactly. I'm making. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Um, but uh, I mean, and let people discover things. That's a great moment when you discover something at that age like that. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. It, it's, uh, it's, you know, we were talking before we started recording and, and I, I, uh, I, one of the things that I do during the school years, I substitute teach for a middle school. And it's so cool to hear about the things that they're discovering, you know, to, to talk to them. I mean, you know, speaking of James Wan, like there was this one kid that had a Leatherface sticker on his laptop and of course went up and I had to talk to him and I was like, yeah. Oh, you know, I love Leatherface. Like, let's talk about this. How do you find out about, 
about Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And he said, oh, well, he said, my older brother showed me The Conjuring and I really loved being scared. And so I started, you know, looking online about like famous horror movies and all this stuff popped up. And I said, you know, that's kind of the modern equivalent of us going to the video store and saying, tell me about Leatherface. Exactly. Um, But yeah, it's, it's so fun. It's cool to see them discovering stuff and to imagine them, you know, frightened and inviting their, their buddies over. And how can everybody know everything about everything? You know, you can't, there's no way. (laughs) Yeah. There's no way. Anyways, I'm glad you said something. Yes. Well, thank thank you. Thank you. But yeah. um, So please. uh, And, and what's your, what, what are your Instagram handles and your Twitter handle? Uh, Peter underscore Bieber gall at Instagram and just, Peter Biebergall, one word on Twitter. Great. Um, yeah. And, and again, go to bookshop.org. Uh, we will have in the show notes, all of his books uh, and we'll, we'll link to some stuff too. And, um, and uh, yeah, uh, Peter, thank you again so much for thank coming you. on. This was, this was great. Really great a really, really fun discussion. And I'd love to have you back anytime. I'd love to talk about heavy metal and satanic panic and stuff like that. I think that would be really Sounds fun. Great. Um, and, uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Graham Skipper. We are also at night school GS on, uh, Twitter and Instagram. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, as always, our theme music is done by Michael Tioli. I uh, can find him at michaeltiolimusic.com. And, uh, again, Peter, thank you so much. And everybody, thank you for being here with us at night school. We appreciate you liking and subscribing, and we will see you next time. And, uh, Stay scary out there, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.